Let's open the sacred scriptures to John chapter 20. We will read the entire chapter, the account of the Apostle John, inspired by the Spirit, the events of Resurrection Sunday. So John chapter 20, beginning at verse 1, and our text is going to be verses 1 through 10. Because of their length, we won't reread them, so pay close attention to verses 1 through 10 as we read the full chapter. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto him, saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together, And the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulchre. And he, he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulchre and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. There our text concludes. But Mary stood without at the sepulchre, weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and that he had spoken these things unto her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. 
And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosesoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosesoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Thus far we read in the sacred scriptures. Beloved in the Lord, Events of great importance are things that we commemorate and celebrate, and sometimes repeatedly. That's why we have a birthday celebration every year. Because God's gift of life is something great and something worth celebrating. That's why those of us whom God has called into the married state celebrate an anniversary each year. Expressing our thankfulness and rejoicing in that gift that God has given But the best of our commemorations and celebrations comes every week, with weekly regularity. Sometimes that weekly regularity breeds familiarity that can lessen our appreciation of it, but it ought not be so. Sunday, first day of the week. The significance of which comes out in this passage, which begins that way. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene to the tomb. And on the first day of the week there was discovered in that tomb emptiness. Because the Lord Jesus arose. Sunday, the day of the Lord's resurrection. The day set aside to rest In the finished work of our Savior. The day death was defeated. The day the grave was swallowed up in victory. The day everlasting righteousness and salvation was sealed unto God's people. The day new life and immortality was brought to light through the triumph of the victorious Savior. Is there anything more worth celebrating than that? 
so significant was Jesus' resurrection. Because Jesus' resurrection seals the completion of all of his saving work. Seals the completion of the saving work he performed on the cross that we looked at Good Friday evening. So important is Jesus' resurrection that God himself changes the day upon which his Sabbath is celebrated. God himself changes creation's day of rest, the seventh day, the Jewish Sabbath, that the disciples had just finished observing here in the history, to the first day. The resurrection Sabbath. Because Christ's resurrection brings forth God's new and greater work of recreation. Christ's resurrection brings new life and a higher and a fuller rest. And every Sunday we celebrate that resurrection and we enter into that rest. The rest of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Today, we take one of those weekly Sabbaths, one of those weekly Resurrection Sundays, and we capitalize the first letter, Resurrection Sunday. Because the church throughout the ages has deemed it wise, and our churches maintain That yet today, that there is value in devoting one of those Resurrection Sundays to a very special and focused consideration of this wonder of of the gospel, this foundation stone of of our faith, that Christ the Lord is risen indeed, and because he is risen, we have life. Life everlasting. We remember... That Christ burst asunder the bars of the grave. Burst forth in glorious life. He died and he rose again for us. So significant is this event. So important is it that the church, that we as God's people commemorate it, celebrate it, find comfort in it. That all four of the gospel accounts record it in detail and set it before us. And so this Resurrection Sunday morning, we're going to turn to one of those gospel accounts inspired by the Spirit for our instruction and for our comfort and for the upbuilding of our faith. And this morning, we're going to consider the historical account of one of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, the Apostle John, whom the Lord inspired to write this account, to write down what he saw, what he experienced. And in fact, that's one of the Spirit's purposes with John chapter 20. One thing you'll notice in John chapter 20 is the emphasis that is placed upon sight. What the disciples saw. What Mary Magdalene saw. What the ten saw. What the eleven, along with Thomas, saw. We have here recorded the God-given evidence For the resurrection, that foundation stone of our faith. And by means of the scriptures, we are given to see. To see the wondrous works of God. To see what happened in time and history. That seeing here on the pages of scripture, we may believe. And in believing, have everlasting life. 
through his name. As Jesus said to Thomas a week after his resurrection, Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. So we're going to look at John 20 verses 1 through 10 this morning. We're going to run to the empty tomb with Peter and John. We're going to see what they saw. We're going to see in that empty tomb something that John's account especially focuses our attention on. A particular sign that Jesus left for his disciples and for his people throughout all ages. A particular sign testifying to the glorious reality of his resurrection. We're going to go with them to the tomb. And see the empty grave clothes. In the empty grave. That's what receives the emphasis in John 20 verses 1 through 10. As you read through the passage, you'll notice that. That three times the empty grave clothes are mentioned. The empty grave clothes, they're lying in the tomb. That's what grabs the attention of the disciples. And that is what must grab our attention this morning. For those empty grave clothes in the empty grave are Jesus' testimony to us. I am not here anymore. Not dead. Not in the grave. But I am risen indeed. Your salvation. Empty grave clothes in an empty grave. That's our theme. We're going to first look at the astonishing sight that the disciples found. Then the only explanation for this astounding sight. And then finally the abiding significance. There was a flurry of activity that morning. When darkness was turned to light and sorrow to rejoicing. It was the first day of the week, Sunday, as the text informs us. And while it was yet dark, at the very first break of dawn, Mary Magdalene, and as we know from the other gospel accounts, other women went to the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid. Their hearts were shrouded in the gloom of sorrow, yet they went. They went as soon as the Jewish Sabbath had ended. They went as soon as they could. They went because they were driven by their love for their Lord and Savior, desirous to perform a last labor of love, coming, bringing spices to finish the preparation of of his body, for burial, And that shows us that indeed as they went in the twilight of that morning, their hearts were shrouded with darkness. The sun arose upon the world, but there was darkness shrouding their hearts. They brought burial spices because to them Jesus was dead and they were going to find him dead and Jesus was going to stay dead there was there was going to be nothing that they would see that morning except a tomb that was not empty but full a tomb that was occupied with the body of their crucified lord and master they go to the tomb with their hearts shrouded in the darkness of seeming hopelessness all of their messianic expectations 
that this was the Christ, that he had come to save his people from their sins, that he had come to establish the kingdom of God. All of that seemed to have been shattered by the horrific and awful events of Friday, when they themselves had laid their eyes upon their dying master, on Calvary's hill crest. The last thing on their minds was resurrection. The one thing on their minds was finishing the burial of Jesus. And so Mary Magdalene and those with her hastened through the twilight. But now, as the opening verses of our text tell us, as they get closer to the tomb, they see that the big stone that was the door of this tomb, a tomb that was not a grave like our graves, a pit in the ground, but something dug into the side of a hill, a cave of sorts, and a large stone was the door. That large stone door had been rolled away. And it's here that John's account focuses on Mary Magdalene, where the other gospel accounts focus on the rest of the women. It's at this point, seeing the opened tomb, that Mary Magdalene jumps to the conclusion that Jesus' body has been stolen. And so Mary Magdalene immediately turns around and runs back to go tell the disciples what she has concluded has happened. While the remaining group, the other women, continue to the tomb, and it is there that they meet the angels and hear the blessed announcement that he is not here, but risen. And then they leave, likely by some other path, to return to the disciples. And while they are leaving, they meet Jesus. You know that history from Matthew and the other accounts. But Mary Magdalene, John focuses on Mary Magdalene. She turns around at this moment and runs back to tell the disciples. The tomb is open. Though she didn't look inside the tomb, she rightly concluded the body isn't there. But she wrongly concludes the only explanation for an open tomb and an empty tomb Someone has taken him. Someone has taken him. And so verse 2 describes what happens. Then she runneth and she cometh to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid him. Notice she says, we know not. And there's, there's an indication from the Gospel of John that Mary Magdalene didn't go to the tomb alone. She was with others. John's account doesn't disagree with the other gospel accounts as if John says only Mary went, whereas the other gospels say a group went. No, John is focusing on Mary Magdalene. So she tells Peter and John, she runs into them. Why them? We don't know. Some have suggested, well, Peter and John were leaders among the disciples, and so it's natural that Mary would first go to them. A likelier explanation is simply that they're the first ones Mary Magdalene ran into. And so she spills out her words. She tells them what she has concluded on the basis of seeing that opened tomb. And now verses 3 and 4 describe the response of Peter and John. They run to the tomb. There's lots of running. Resurrection Sunday morning. A frenzy of activity. They run to the tomb. They have to see for themselves what has happened. 
Mary Magdalene's conclusion seems very reasonable to them. If the tomb is opened, the only explanation for an open tomb must be that the body has been taken. Now we must see it for ourselves. And so Peter and John break into a run. And they start, they start off running together. But you can imagine that as they're running to the tomb, more and more their minds start racing. What has happened? And their racing minds give extra speed to their running feet. And as the text says, John, John outruns Peter, leaving him behind and reaching the tomb first. Some have asked, what explains this? How is it that John outruns Peter? Some have tried to find a, a deeper significance to this. Some have said, well, perhaps it's because John was younger than Peter. After all, we know that John was one of the last disciples to pass away. He lived much longer than the other disciples. It's possible he was younger, but that doesn't seem to be a good explanation for this. The age gap, if there was one between John and Peter, would not have been such that Peter was a slow runner and John was a fast runner. Others have suggested that perhaps Peter's feet was, were slowed because of the weight of guilt that he, bear, that he bore as the disciple who had denied his Lord three times. That doesn't seem too convincing either. The likeliest explanation is that John is just recording what happened here. John happened to be the faster runner. And and this is one of those details that shows the authenticity of the gospel accounts. The Bible simply describes things as they happened. It's true to life. Both Peter and John, full of adrenaline, their minds racing, sprint to the tomb. And they're so intent on getting to the tomb that though they started running together, they forget each other. They just have to get there as fast as they can. And John makes it there first. But Peter is close behind him. We have a description of what happened. The Bible is real to life. It's authentic. It's true. These are the kind of details you find not in a forgery, not in a story that's been doctored up, but in an eyewitness account, simply laying out the facts. So John reaches the tomb. The text tells us what happens when John reaches the tomb. Verse 5. He comes there first. He stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying. Yet went he not in. He stoops down. Likely because the the opening to the cave-like tomb was not eight feet. Like many of our doors. But would have been much shorter. A smaller opening so that you'd have to crouch or stoop down to to walk through the entrance of the tomb. And so John stoops down and he peers into the open tomb. But he does not go in right away. He stands there and he looks in. Why? Questions have been asked there. Is there some deeper significance here? Is it that John is afraid to go into the dark tomb alone? Some have suggested that. That's unlikely. But rather, we have another one of those details that marks the authenticity of the gospel account. This is entirely in character with who John is. As all four gospels depict him, John 
is the contemplative disciple. He is the thoughtful disciple. He is the thoughtful theologian of the eternal word made flesh. Just think of the opening verses of the gospel of John. that The spirit inspired John to write. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. This is in character with who John is. He comes to the the entrance of the tomb and he looks in and he sees those linen grave clothes lying there. And he pauses. And his thoughtful mind begins racing in a different way. What is this? What does this mean? He ponders. He ponders. The empty grave chamber. The body is gone. The tomb is empty. But something else in that empty tomb rivets John's attention. His eyes fix on a more astounding sight. Namely, the empty grave clothes lying in the empty tomb. The text focuses our eyes on that in verse 5. He saw the linen clothes lying. These linen clothes were laying on the stone slab or the bench-like stone structure inside the tomb where the dead body of a person was laid. Here, we have to understand something about the burial practice of the Jews. When the Jews buried a body, they used long strips of linen cloth to wrap that body up. That's what We mean by grave clothes or linen clothes. If we flip back to John 19, verses 39 through 40, which records the burial of Jesus by Joseph of Arimathea in Nicodemus, we can read a little bit about this Jewish burial practice. John 19, verse 39 and 40. So, Good Friday night, after the body of Jesus was taken down from the cross, Joseph of Arimathea brought the body of Jesus to his own tomb in this garden. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. And so they took these linen strips of cloth, which were likely very, very long, and they began winding them, wrapping the body in layer after layer of these linen clothes. And in between the layers of linen, they would put these spices, and lots of spices. After all, the text says that Nicodemus brought an hundred pound weight of all of these different spices. So we mustn't think about it as just a little bit of cloth wrapped around Jesus' body. It was layer after layer after layer with precious spices between the layers. Jesus' body was thoroughly wrapped in these linen grave clothes. And that leads us to to understand the significance of this sign. This significance of this astounding sight that John sees as he looks into the empty grave. He sees these linen grave clothes lying there on the stone slab. But they're empty. They're lying. And the idea is lying flat. 
they're undisturbed. As if the body was still there, but empty. They still have the rough shape of Jesus' body, but flat, because the body is not inside of them anymore. The body is gone. The grave clothes are just as empty as the tomb chamber around them. What could this mean? Well, now Peter catches up. Peter catches up, and as the text says, Peter quickly pushes past John and goes straight into the tomb. Verse 6, Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie. Another touch showing the gospel is authentic. Not only does the gospel of John portray John in character as we read about him in the other four gospels, but same with Peter. There's a consistency of depiction of Peter between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Peter, the impulsive disciple. Peter, the man of action. Peter, the man who often acted before he thought. Very different from John, the the disciple who pauses and ponders before he acts. Peter comes to the tomb, pushes past, and rushes straight in. And now that word see in verse 6 is a different word than the word see in verse 5. See in verse 5, John looks with his eyes upon the empty tomb and the linen grave clothes laying there. But now in verse 6, the word see is a different Greek word that means to observe, to behold round about you. In fact, it's a Greek word that we get our word theater from. So you think of a theater sitting there and beholding something all around you. Peter comes in and he observes. He looks at the empty tomb. His eyes go here and there and everywhere, taking in all of the details until his eyes get locked on the very same thing that John's attention is riveted upon. This text says, again, the grave clothes lying there. What does this mean, this astounding sight? These grave clothes, they're they're still wrapped like they would be if a body was in them, but flat, empty, empty. And now Peter, who is inside the tomb, sees something else. A second testimony, a second witness, a second piece of evidence inside this empty tomb. Verse 7, the end of verse 6, Peter seeth the linen clothes lie, and now verse 7, and the napkin that was about his head. Not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Peter's eyes now get riveted on a new and strange and astounding sight. The napkin. Children, the napkin here isn't a piece of paper you use to to wipe your mouth after you eat. But the napkin here describes A grave shroud, that is, the the linen that was used to cover the head of the body. This napkin was linen cloth, just like the grave clothes, that was wrapped around the head of the body. A grave shroud. 
And so this, this head covering, this grave shroud, Peter notices it's not with the rest of the grave clothes, but it's set aside. It's over here. It's all by itself. And then even more strikingly, this grave shroud, this head covering, is not cast aside haphazardly, but is neatly folded. That's what the text means when it says, wrapped together in a place by itself. It's set aside over here by itself and neatly folded. The way you would fold a pair of, pair of shorts or a shirt before you put it into a drawer. Nicely folded. What does that mean? The only way something like that happens is, is if there is an ordering hand that's in no rush that carefully folds it and puts it there. Peter's eyes glued to this strange sight. The folded napkin set aside from the empty grave clothes. Then at last, John, who had paused to ponder, steps into the tomb and comes beside Peter. Verse 8. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. We'll come back to the believing part in the second point. Let's focus on the saw. He comes into the tomb, and now he sees both of these signs, these testimonies, these two witnesses that have been left in the empty grave. The, the empty grave clothes lying there and the folded napkin set aside. What he saw was no ordinary sight. Something extraordinary had happened here. John sees that. And that's emphasized by this third instance of the word saw. The word saw here in verse 8 is different from the two words in the preceding verses. Saw in verse 5 means to see with the eyes, to look upon. Saw in verse 6, describing Peter we talked about means to observe, to take in all of the facts around you. But now the verb saw in verse 8 is a third word, which means especially to perceive with the mind. Yes, it describes looking upon something with the eyes, but it describes a deeper seeing, a comprehending with the mind, comprehending what you are looking upon, perceiving. John perceives that something most extraordinary has happened here, which requires an explanation. These grave clothes lying empty, this grave shroud set aside and folded, this doesn't happen normally. Something miraculous has happened here. What explains it? What explains it? What explains the empty grave clothes in the empty tomb? And there can be only one explanation. 
resurrection. That he is not here because he is risen. That is the only explanation for the evidence that meets the eyes of Peter and John. Remember, Peter and John came to the tomb with Mary Magdalene's conclusion in the forefront of their minds. Mary Magdalene had come, and in verse 2, she had said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Some unidentified they. We don't know who. Maybe it was the Jewish leaders to do some last indignity to the body of Jesus Christ. Maybe it was a common grave robber, because graves were often robbed in those days, since valuables were stored in the graves. Often, it would be a lucrative business for criminals to plunder graves. Someone, someone robbed Jesus' grave. And that's the the thinking that Peter and, and John have as they come to the tomb. But now what we see happening in the text is Peter and John looking at the evidence in that empty grave and coming to see that the explanation that they came with does not and cannot be reconciled with the facts right in front of them. It doesn't fit with the evidence. Especially those empty grave clothes doesn't fit with a grave robbery explanation of the empty tomb. Yes, that would be the popular explanation of the empty tomb. That would be the story that the Jewish leaders would spread around Jerusalem, that Jesus' own disciples came and took the body away so that they could lie about what happened and say that Jesus rose again from the dead. But that's simply not possible. After all, we know that there were Roman guards stationed at the door of the tomb. No thief, let alone the disciples of Jesus, were going to get past those Roman guards. And even if those Roman guards had fallen asleep the way the Jewish leaders made things out to be, how likely is it that the Roman soldiers would have been undisturbed by the loud grinding noise of someone trying to displace a large boulder in front of the door of the tomb? It's simply not a credible story. Besides, If someone had stolen the body, why didn't they just grab it and run? Why would they have bothered to take the body out of the grave clothes? That makes no sense. The grave robber would then have the unpleasant experience of touching the dead body itself. And that dead body unwrapped from its grave clothes would be all the more difficult to transport out of the tomb with its limp limbs hanging out. Not to mention the time it would take to unwrap the body. A thief doesn't have that kind of time to engage in a pointless task while he's trying to commit a crime undetected. It simply doesn't make sense. If someone were to steal the body, they would not have unwrapped it from the grave clothes. But then there's this. The body wasn't unwrapped. Remember. Remember what Peter and John saw? 
which was so startling, so astounding. They didn't see a heap of discarded linens. They didn't come into the empty tomb and find strips of linen grave clothes thrown here and there. They found the grave clothes still wrapped in the shape of a body, but flat because the body was gone. It's utterly impossible for a body to come out of that wrapping without cutting the linens or unwinding them. And yet, they were not cut and they were not unwound. They were simply flat. There's no way the body was taken out of those linen grave clothes. More and more, it is becoming clear as the disciples stare at the amazing evidence in front of them, more and more it is becoming clear that something miraculous happened, that the body simply passed through those grave clothes so that the grave clothes retained their shape and simply fell flat and empty. No grave robber could do this. And this also shows... The disciples could not have hatched some great deceitful plan to steal the body and pretend Jesus had risen. That doesn't explain. The linen grave clothes still wrapped like this, but without the body in them. And then the napkin, a second witness. Remember, That truth in the Old Testament was established in the mouth of two witnesses. Jesus is doing that here. Jesus leaves for his disciples two witnesses inside his empty tomb. The linen grave clothes lying and now the napkin folded and set aside. What grave robber is going to unwrap the grave shroud from the head of the body and then take it and with care neatly fold it up and set it aside. The only one who would do that is someone who wants this to be found. Jesus himself. Jesus himself. His hand is the ordering hand that folded his grave shroud and set it aside. Powerful significance in that. Jesus setting aside death. Setting aside all that belongs to death. He has risen. Passed beyond death. New and immortal life. He rises. He comes through those grave clothes. They can't hold him any more than the grave or death itself can hold him. He passes through them because he is beyond death. Takes that grave shroud, folds it up, and sets it aside. No more of that. Forever finished is death in the grave for the risen Savior. And so, silently, these two witnesses testify to the word that the angels had spoken to the women who had been. To the tomb before. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. 
So now the text moves to give us a little bit of insight into the response of John and Peter to the wonder that they saw. The text describes John and Peter interpreting the evidence that they see right in front of them and gives us a glimpse of the dawning of new understanding. Though that understanding dawns Two different levels for John and for Peter. This is John's gospel. He wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so naturally, the text focuses on John. John writes on the pages of scripture his own experience here. Verse 8. Then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulcher. And he saw, now the second part that we're going to look at now. And believed. He saw, he perceived with his mind the meaning of the evidence, the two witnesses before him, and he believed. Believed. This doesn't mean that John, for the first time, believes in Jesus, or for the first time, believes that Jesus is the Christ. That's not the idea. But what the text means is, seeing this evidence, he believes Resurrection. He sees that the explanation with which he came to the tomb cannot fit with the evidence before him. And that the only conclusion, the only explanation that fits with the evidence before him is this. Jesus somehow miraculously rose from the dead. There is no other way to explain the grave clothes lying in the empty tomb the way that they are. He believes. And the darkness of that morning is pierced by light. Jesus is risen from the dead. He doesn't understand how. He doesn't understand all the details. In fact, this dawning of his understanding is quite small yet. Nevertheless, he believes the fact And the smoking flax of John's faith is reignited by the visible word of the linen grave clothes lying there. Jesus' own testimony. And now in believing, we have the most penetrating word for seeing. He sees and he believes. He sees now the invisible reality of Jesus' resurrection With the eyes of faith. The eyes of faith which see more clearly than even 20-20 vision with these physical eyes. The eyes of faith which perceive beyond the veil and are riveted upon the truth of God and His work. John believes. Now our text doesn't say Anything about Peter. Our text is silent about Peter. But there is a parallel passage in Luke 24, which tells us about Peter's reaction. So if we flip back to Luke 24, verse 12, we can read about Peter. Luke 24, verse 12. Here, Luke, in very brief fashion, describes the events of our text. But Luke, 
doesn't mention John, but simply describes Peter running to the tomb. Then arose Peter and ran unto the sepulcher, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. There is a dawning of understanding in Peter's heart, but it's not to the same level as John yet. The text doesn't say that Peter believed. He did not yet arrive at that conclusion that Jesus is risen, but he leaves the tomb wondering. And that word wondering means more than wrestling with questions inside of yourself. Another translation of the word wondering would be marveling. Peter perceived that something extraordinary had happened here, but he wasn't yet sure what that extraordinary thing was. He would need a little more. And Jesus would mercifully give him a little more. If we flip the page in Luke 24, we read about the fact that later in the evening on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus would personally appear to Peter alone. Luke 24, verse 34, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. What's happening here in Luke 24, verse 34, is Jesus had appeared to the travelers on the road to Emmaus and revealed himself to them. And so the travelers on the road to Emmaus immediately turn around, rush back to Jerusalem, and come to the place where the disciples are gathered. And as the travelers to Emmaus enter into that house, the ten disciples, because Thomas wasn't there, the ten disciples exclaim to them the words that we read in verse 34. The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So what we can gather from that is that sometime... Before Jesus had appeared to the ten, the night of Resurrection Sunday, he appeared to Simon alone. And it would be there that the dawning of Simon Peter's understanding would come to greater light. But now, if we turn back to John 20... We see that though there was a dawning of understanding, and in the case of John a reigniting of that smoking flax of his faith, still there was not yet full understanding. Verse 9, John candidly writes this about himself, remember. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. What verse 9 is saying is not that John did not believe the fact of the resurrection. That's what John perceived. But John, and especially Peter, did not yet understand the nature of Jesus' resurrection, the necessity of it, and especially this, the fact that Jesus' death and resurrection was the fulfillment of the Scriptures, and that all of these things had to happen in order for God's eternal plan of salvation to be accomplished. They did not grasp these realities of the gospel yet. They knew the scriptures, they did, but they did not understand how all of the scriptures applied to Jesus Christ. So for example, 
the Resurrection Sunday Psalm, Psalm 16. They, they knew those words. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. They knew those words, but they did not yet understand that the speaker of those words in the psalm was not ultimately David, the human writer that God used to pen those words, but the speaker is ultimately Jesus Christ himself, David's greater son. Psalm 16 is a prophecy of the resurrection of the Messiah. And it is precisely because of that that the psalm has application to us. Because God raised his son Jesus Christ and showed him the path of life, God will raise us and show us the path of life. Those who belong to the risen Savior. They did not yet grasp these truths. From the scriptures. And so that's why. When Jesus appears to his disciples. Following his resurrection. One of the first and main things that he does. Is open the scriptures to them. And impart to them an understanding. A full understanding of his work. That his death and resurrection were necessary. In order to accomplish salvation. And to establish his kingdom. Think back on Luke 24. That's exactly what Jesus does with the travelers on the road to Emmaus. He opens the scriptures and he goes from Moses through the prophets and the Psalms expounding the things concerning himself. And Jesus does that. Resurrection Sunday evening when he appears to his disciples. The ten of them gathered together. Not only does he show himself to them. Show them his nail printed hands. But as we read in Luke 24. Verses 44 through 46. O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus opened the scriptures to his disciples and gave them understanding of the scriptures. And that's important. That's what would equip the disciples to go and be his apostles and preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And proclaim that gospel to the ends of the earth. So an application for us this morning. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of the scriptures. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We have a more sure word of prophecy. The scriptures. As John 20 ends, verse 31. These things are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing ye might have life through his name. 
believe. We don't need to see the exact same way the disciples saw. We see on the pages of Scripture. We see with the eyes that have the clearest vision, the eyes of faith. We are in no way disadvantaged by the fact that we were not there. Sometimes we might think that way. We have the scriptures and an understanding of the scriptures. Jesus said, Blessed are they that have not seen, yet have believed. But by God's grace, we also see in another way. We see and believe the resurrection because we have experienced its power, have we not? We've experienced the power of the resurrection which can't be explained any other way. When you're at the bedside of a dying loved one, when you're at the graveside of a loved one who has passed away, and even amidst the tears, there's that comfort, that peace that passeth all understanding, that joy that enables you even to sing. That's the power of Christ's resurrection. And when you experience that power, the only explanation for that experience is, He is risen. He is risen. We believe. We believe because the scriptures say so. What we believe from the scriptures fits with our lived experience. And so there's abiding significance for us this morning to take with us briefly. Abiding significance, the gospel story of the resurrection. Christ is risen. We serve a living Savior and we shall live in Him, through Him, forevermore. The abiding significance of the empty grave clothes in the empty tomb is simply this. Christ's tomb is empty. It's empty. How significant that is. How abiding that significance is. Christ's tomb is empty. That means death could not hold the Christ. Death had no power to keep him. The grave could not contain him. Why? Because the thing which put him in the grave was gone. And the thing that put him in the grave was that mass of your sin and mine. Which he took on Good Friday's cross and bore. The sentence of death that our sin deserves fell on him. And he entered into the grave. But he arose. And he arose because the thing that put him there was gone. Your guilt, my guilt, our sin, the punishment we deserve, born, carried away, gone. The resurrection shows us that the cross was a success. That Jesus spoke the truth when he said, it is finished. The resurrection is the seal, the confirmation, the assurance. Salvation accomplished. He arose because our sin is taken care of, paid in full, justice satisfied, the Father well pleased. And he arose because death and sin had no more keeping power. 
The resurrection shows us the cross is effective. Death is defeated. Death has no more killing power. For those who belong to Jesus, it has no claim on you anymore. And thus, flowing from that, the abiding significance, Christ's tomb is empty. What that means is, your tomb is empty too. Not that our bodies will never go into the grave, they will. But this, your body won't stay in the grave. And Jesus' words in Psalm 16 are put in your mouth too. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, nor suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. Your tomb is empty. It has no door that can close shut. It has no more bars. The resurrection of Christ has burst it open. Death cannot do what death wants to do. Death is the separator, but death has no power to separate anymore. Yes, it may temporarily separate us from a loved one here in this world, but not forever. And death can never separate us from God. Death is the servant that God uses now to bring us to himself, and death does not separate us from one another. Because upon the day of our death, we are reunited with all of God's people who have gone before us. This is the abiding significance of the resurrection. The tomb of Christ is empty. That means your tomb is empty too. He is the resurrection and the life. Those that believe in him, though they die, yet shall they live. Because he lives, you can face tomorrow. All fear is gone. Go home now, like the disciples went home. But go home now with the resurrection gospel in your heart. Having seen the empty tomb, having seen the empty grave clothes, go home believing, wondering, rejoicing. Amen. Faithful God and Father, we thank Thee for the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Grant that we may go home now with the joy of that gospel in our hearts. And may we render unto Thee our grateful praises this day for life, resurrection life, through our risen Savior. Amen.